Well, he emerged from the metro and positioned himself against a wall beside a garbage can. By most measures, he was nondescript, a young man in jeans, long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and some pocket change as some seed money, swiveled it to face the, pedest the pedestrian traffic, and began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on a Friday morning in mid-January, the middle of the morning rush hour. And in the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Now, each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is out there in the cityscape. Do you stop and listen? Or do you hurry by pretending not to notice? Do you throw a buck in as you walk by uh, just to be polite? Does it matter if the musician's really bad? What if they're really, really good? Would you take the time to not only notice, but appreciate the beauty of the music? Well, on that Friday in January, those questions would be answered in an unusually public way. No one knew it, but the fiddler standing against a bare wall outside the metro at the top of the escalators was Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made, worth $3.5 million. His performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities. So what do you think happened? Well, out of the nearly 1,100 people who walked past Bell that morning, only one person recognized who he was, and only four took the time to stop and listen for any length of time. In fact, the only people who consistently noticed him playing and wanted to stop and listen were, of course, children. Uh, and in each case, the parents tried to hurry them along. Well, after 43 minutes of playing, soaring music befitting the grandeur of cathedrals and concert halls, Bell ended up making a total of $37.12. Now, I'd like to think that if my family had been in the metro station that morning, that we would have noticed this remarkable music and certainly stopped to listen for at least a portion of one of his pieces. But I'm probably deluding myself. I mean, before I read this article, I had never even heard of Joshua Bell. Would I really have stopped during rush hour to listen to a random violinist, even if he was amazing? If I had nowhere to go, maybe. But if I had to be at work or to be at a meeting and people were expecting me, probably not. Like the thousand-some other people, I would have walked by missing an amazing concert given for free by one of the world's greatest violinists. Well, today is the first Sunday in the church season called Ordinary Time. Now, Ordinary Time is that season that is, well, seemingly ordinary, right? All our Christmas de decorations have been taken down. There's no major holidays during this season, no great feast to speak of. It's that time of year where we, we get re-engaged back in the busyness of work or school, sports and schedules. And it can become very easy during this season to miss out on all the ways that God continues to encounter us, say, during rush hour on an 
ordinary Friday morning. It's interesting that the word ordinary is rooted in the word ordinal, to count. It's been said that this season of our lives is not simply ordinary in the way we usually use that word, meaning like uneventful or unimportant, but rather it is counted time, time that counts, that matters. See, there's something really special, dare I say, life-changing about this season if we're willing to give ourselves permission to stop every once in a while and to notice, to stop and to listen to what God is speaking to us. And that's what I want to explore with you today as we continue our series of series entitled Marking Time, Listening to God in the Church Year. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this very moment right here, this present moment, a moment we have each in our own way set aside to make room for you to work in our lives. We make room to worship and honor you, but at the same time we make room for your spirit to have your spirit's way in our hearts and our lives and our minds. And so as we look at the scriptures, as we continue to engage in more worship through song later on, as we pray together, I, I ask that by your grace, we would be aware of the ways that you're working on us, continuing to shape us in the image of your son, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3. Uh, the majority of the church year, this particular year, is in Matthew's gospel. So we're going to be spending a lot of time here. Um, this is verse 13, chapter 3, uh, the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, last Sunday we celebrated Epiphany, which is the culmination of the Christmas season. As Pat mentioned last week, Epiphany comes from the Greek, meaning appearing or revealing. Uh, when we say that someone had an epiphany, we usually mean that they had a kind of aha moment, some kind of revelation. For instance, recognizing that the street musician was Joshua Bell, a world-class violinist, could be described as having an epiphany. I find it quite instructive that all the Sundays during this cycle of ordinary time are named in reference to epiphany and not ordinary time. So this isn't the first Sunday in ordinary time. Well, it is. But if you look at like liturgical calendars, it says this is the first Sunday after Epiphany. And next week it'll be the second Sunday after Epiphany and all the way till we get to Ash Wednesday and Lent. It's as if we're being reminded not only to remember Epiphany as a one-off one event, a, a, a past event, like the Magi's recognition that the baby Jesus is actually Christ the King, what we looked at last week, 
but also to continue to keep our eyes and our ears open to future moments of shimmering revelation. Not just kings and stars, but doves and voices as well. Water and wine, loaves and fishes, demons and pigs, mountains and transfigurations. In Celtic Christianity, epiphany stories are stories of thin places, places where the, the boundary between the mundane and the, or, and the eternal become, we might say, permeable so that we can experience what is beyond the ordinary. God, in a sense, parts the curtain and we catch glimpses of goodness, truth, and beauty. Epiphany calls us to look beneath the ordinary surfaces of our own lives and discover the extraordinary. To look deeply at Jesus and not just see a man, but see God. To look deeply at one another and indeed ourselves and see Christ. It's probably safe to say that John might have been as surprised as we certainly would be if we didn't know the whole story. I mean, we come in, and especially those of us who've been in church for any number of years, we kind of know the story. We know how it goes. But imagine if you didn't know the ending, if you didn't know what came after the next section. I mean, right before the passage we just read, John the Baptist is, is leading a renewal movement in the countryside for repentance for both personal as well as national sins. And there must have been this great anticipation building amongst the crowd leading up to the appearance of Jesus. John kept telling them things like, he's coming. He's more powerful than me. He'll clean house when he comes too. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowd is anxious and expectant. Who is this great leader that John is speaking of? Is it going to be the, 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 the promised Messiah, the Christ? Perhaps it will be the living God himself arriving with a blaze of light and color, transforming everything in a single moment. But instead, who do we get? We get Jesus. The only Jesus we've met so far in, the, in Matthew's gospel is a baby with a price on his head. A Jesus who comes and stands humbly before John asking for baptism, sharing in the penitential mood of the rest of Judea. A Jesus who seems to be identifying himself not with a God who, who sweeps all before him in judgment, but with the people who are themselves facing judgment and needing to repent. And this kind of troubles John. He seems to have known that Jesus was the one they were waiting for, but why would he be coming to me for baptism? What about God's agenda? What about the wind and the fire? What about the axe laid at the root of the tree? Surely, if anything, John needs to be baptized by Jesus. In fact, that's what he says in the very first verse we read. I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. And do you come to me? And indeed, Christians throughout the centuries have been also troubled by this. In fact, according to Christian historian John Dominic Crossan, Jesus' baptism was somewhat of an embarrassment for the early church. Why would God's incarnate son need to receive a baptism for repentance of sins? like every ordinary person. 
What, do, what, what was he doing in that murky water, throwing his reputation aside to be dunked with all the others? And why did God choose that sordid moment to part the clouds and call his son beloved? And yet, if we're familiar at all with the Gospels, this kind of thing shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, Jesus' life starts off in scandal. Jesus is conceived in the womb of an unwed teenager. He's born in a room reserved for animals. When threatened by a sociopath ruler, his family finds peace and safety in Egypt, a nation seen as the epitome of evil. Jesus' entire ministry is marked by these moments. He had no problem hanging out with prostitutes and revolutionaries. He broke religious laws and traditions in order to show mercy to others. As I was writing these things down, I thought, one wonders what we would do if Jesus showed up in our churches today. What would we do to Jesus? We probably wouldn't recognize him. And we would probably do a lot of the things that the religious leaders of that day did. And yet, when we think about it, all of this ought to be incredibly good news because it's indicative of how God continues to engage with humanity. There is a genius, I think, to designating the bulk of each church year as ordinary time. It is the epiphany, the great realization that the ordinary rhythms of our everyday lives are indeed sacred that there is something holy to be found in the midst of what usually seems anything but holy. That God is just as present in the grittiness of our ordinary days as in the great celebrations of Christmas and Easter. See, the promise of ordinary time is that God is present not only in the good moments of our lives, but the bad and the ugly ones as well. That God is present not only in the mountaintop experiences bristling with light, but the darkest of valleys as well. That God is present not just when we're reading the scriptures and shouting out hallelujahs, but also when we're sweeping floors and wiping snotty noses, which happens a lot these days, right? God is present not just when we get it right, but also when we get it wrong. And because God is present and active in the midst of the very moments that seem to count the least, if we're paying attention, these moments, in the end, can count the most. They can become a means of grace and an opportunity for transformation. This is why the liturgical color chosen for ordinary time is the color green, the color of growth, the color of flourishing. And so with John, just when we're a tempted to uh, accuse Jesus of scandal, why would you come to be baptized? Just when we think we know what Jesus should and should not be doing, the clouds part, the spirit falls, and the voice of God declares what we would have never have seen with our ordinary eyes. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't even begun his ministry. He wasn't known yet for his, his, his awesome winemaking skills. Read it. It's in John's Gospel. Not making it up. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't cast out any demons. He hadn't fed thousands from a little boy's lunch yet. Jesus seemed, well, ordinary. 
the son of Joseph, a carpenter. John's cousin, he was John the Baptist's cousins, they most likely spent time playing as children, making mud pies, running around with the other village kids, playing tag or hide and seek. Entering into his teenage years, Jesus would have gone through the growing pains of puberty, as well as navigating the social gauntlet of his peers. His early adult life would have been marked by the ordinary rhythms of everyday life, running Joseph's business, rushing to the market to get some produce for dinner, spending his evenings with friends and family, laughing at each other's jokes, dreaming of what the future might hold for them and their nation. In other words, Jesus appeared on the scene in quite an ordinary manner. And then comes the epiphany. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, that's what God says about Jesus. What about you and me? What about our seemingly ordinary lives? Do they matter? Do they count? You know, we all wonder this every now and then. I think it's pretty normal. <laughs> we all look in the mirror sometimes and, and wonder, who am I? We look at the person we pass on the street or we drive past in our car and we wonder, who are they? We have good days and we have bad days. And let's be honest, most of us lead pretty ordinary lives. And yet the epiphany of Jesus becomes ours as well. I want you to take a really close look with me at something Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And you can notice all three elements of that divine affirmation spoken over Jesus spoken about us. Adoption as sons and daughters, God's love for us, and God's pleasure. This is Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, long before God laid down earth's foundations, God had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us as sons and daughters into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. It's all there, spoken about you and me. See, you and I might think of ourselves as ordinary unimportant, or even unworthy. But beneath the surface of our own lives, the voice of God reveals something extraordinary as represented in our own baptisms. You are my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Before you and I accomplish anything for God, before we're able to do anything that we think makes us worthy or unworthy, epiphany, you are my child whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Like Joshua Bell playing in the metro station, we spend much of our lives unaware of who we really are, what our deepest identity is unaware of the stranger at the store or the neighbor down the street, of who they really are. How would our lives and the lives of others be different if we truly believed this about ourselves as well as truly believed this about others? On a crisp September day in 1981, a group of eight men in their 70s and 80s 
climbed into a few vans and headed two hours north of Boston to a monastery in New Hampshire. The men were about to take part in a five-day retreat where they were asked to live as if they were 22 years younger than they were at the moment. The retreat was organized by a team of researchers headed by Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer. When the men arrived at the monastery, they found themselves surrounded by all sorts of environmental cues to help them recreate an earlier age. They flipped through old issues of Life and the Saturday Evening Post. They watched movies and television shows popular in 1959, and they listened to recordings of Perry Como and Nat King Cole on the radio. They also talked about current events such as Castro's rise to power in Cuba and even the feats of baseball star Mickey Mantle and boxing great Floyd Patterson. All of these elements were carefully and cleverly designed to help the men imagine they were really 22 years younger. Well, after the retreat, researchers took several measurements and compared them to those that they had taken prior to the beginning of the study. And remarkably, the bodies of the men experienced amazing changes. They discovered improvements in height as their posture straightened and their joints became more flexible. Their fingers lengthened as their arthritis diminished. Their eyesight and hearing got better. Their grip strength improved. Their memory sharpened. And they scored better on cognitive tests, scores improving by some 63%. Langer reported, at the end of the study, I was playing football, touch, but still football, with these men, some who had, gave, who had given up their canes. It's the power of what we believe. What we believe about ourselves matters. It has real consequences for our lives. And what we believe about other people matters. It has real consequences for their lives as well. See, I believe that we will struggle to live like sons and daughters of the living God until we know we are the sons and daughters of the living God. The one comes before the other. Getting our identity right, our deepest selves. As Franciscan priest and author Richard Rohr says so beautifully, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. That's repentance. Changing our minds and trusting in that divine affirmation. You are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. See, just as each passerby in that metro station had a choice, they could walk right past the beautiful music and never stop to pay attention. Or they could step out of the ordinary for a moment and listen, truly listen, allowing that moment to impact their lives. And it's the same thing with you and I. We have a choice. I think we often expect God's revelations to bowl us over somehow, thinking that thin places ought to dominate our spiritual landscape, such that we're left freed of all doubts, left almost without a choice. But no, God has not insulted humanity with so little agency. We get to choose. No matter how many times God shows up in our lives, we are free to ignore. He won't force us. No matter how many times God calls us beloved, we can choose self-loathing instead. 
No matter how many times we might remember our own baptisms, we're free to dredge out the dirt we left behind. What we choose to believe about ourselves, what we choose to believe about God matters. It counts, and it has the power to transform our lives. Amen? So I'd like to close with a meditation that I've taught at least one or two times here on a Sunday morning. It's actually included in our first step class, Grow, as a practice we want people to, to familiarize themselves with something I do often in spiritual direction sessions. But it's the practice of receiving God's affirmation for ourselves that we find in Jesus' baptism. Stepping out of the ordinary to experience the extraordinary love of God and the truth about our deepest selves. And so I invite you to close your eyes with me for a moment. Just kind of settle into your chair be in a relaxed position, take a couple deep breaths. Let's just dial down for a second. And as you continue to breathe deeply and slowly, imagine yourself in a place that's peaceful and calm. Might be a place that you already go to often at home or somewhere around here up north, maybe it's a place you like to vacation. Wherever it is, see yourself there in your imagination. Take a moment to kind of situate, situate yourself there. Now allow yourself to sense God's presence. Holy Spirit, I invite you to come and reveal your presence to each person here in that place. In what way do you sense God's presence with you? Maybe you see God, you see Jesus. He's sitting with you or standing near you. Just take a moment to sense that. If you're having trouble sensing God's presence, don't be hard on yourself. It's a normal thing. Just trust that God is present with you. Now I want you to hear those words, the same words spoken over Jesus, spoken over you. Receive it personally. You are my child, or you are my son or daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. might find a part of yourself resistant to receiving those words. Holy Spirit, we pray for the grace to receive. Just 
hear, hear God speak that over to you a couple times. Hear God repeat that. Maybe you can even see God looking at you. You see the look in his eyes. You are my child. I love you. And I'm so pleased with you. You are my child whom I love. I so, so love you. And I'm so pleased with you. I take pleasure in knowing you. How does that feel, receiving that affirmation? What emotions are you experiencing? And can you get a sense of what God might be feeling toward you? Just hear it one more time. You are my child, whom I love. You, I am well pleased. Just continue to sit in that place. I encourage you. So how, how was that experience? Anybody want to briefly share what they, what they experienced? Maybe the emotions you felt or what it was like for you? You can do it Phil Donahue style. I'll just share the last piece which is, you know, starting stuck, <clears throat> sitting in, at lion's den, and then ending in, he grabs a hold of my hand and says, let's go run, and we're just free. We cross over a bridge and just take off, man, and I wanted to yell, so <laughs> this is my chance. <laughs> Once worship starts, you can yell, <laughs> scream. Thank you. Anybody else? This row. Um, I was at the beach because that's like my... Your go-to place. Yes. Um, and it, the air was just so fresh and it was extremely peaceful. And then the deep breathing, it was like just like a cleansing, um, freeing breath and yeah. very, very peaceful. So, yeah. Awesome. I was kind of reflecting on that... Um, 
was it? Who was the speaker that was here? And he said, grace, Matt. grace is a person and her name is the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so I had just this sense of being at home and just being held by the Holy Spirit like a mother. Yeah. And just that, just that wave of gentleness, just as you, you know, it's just like as a baby just kind of snuggles into a mother. Mm -hmm. It was like that. Yeah. That's beautiful. So I want to share my, my, my wife, Kat, uh, shared first service what she experienced and one of the things she said was how she felt this resistance to receiving that like there were some walls like i'm not i'm not worthy and, and i shared how how many of us i'm guessing experience those walls those hurdles to receiving words like that but it's like doing something like this chips away at those walls slowly but surely. And so it's something that we have to return to again and again. And so I, I always encourage people when I introduce this prayer practice is go home and practice this every day this week and, and, and even longer. And make it like a five, I mean, it take, can take five minutes to do. You could be sitting at work and, and on your 15-minute break and just take five minutes, maybe even read you know, Matthew 3 where Jesus is being baptized. You can even step into that scriptural story see yourself receiving your own baptism and receiving those words. And the more we do that, the more we start to recognize and live into that identity of being a son or daughter of, of uh, God. So I encourage you to do that. Amen.